Hi, everybody. This is Jimmy DeYoung here at Broadcast Central. So glad to have you along. All I need is 90 minutes of your time. We'll give you the world, and we'll talk about current events happening around this world today that seem to be setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. There is a prophetic scenario found in God's Word. We try to put the two together on this 90-minute broadcast every single time we get an opportunity to come your way. So glad you could be along with us today. Going to be talking about Prime Minister Netanyahu telling the Jewish settlers there in Israel that uh, the Israeli government's going to take sovereignty over these settlements that will all be a part of the state of Israel. And then the prime minister also went to the second most sacred city in all of Judaism, that's Hebron. That's the site of the burial, Machpelah Cave, for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs of the Jewish faith. Now, this will be a very important information. Winky Madad standing by, David Wilder there in Hebron, so keep the dial right where it is. But we're thrilled to be able to go now to the Jacksonville, Florida area where Ken Timmerman hangs his hat when he's not traveling around the world someplace. And uh, we were praying for Ken. We called earlier in the week to tell him we were praying for him. Ken, looks like that uh, hurricane missed you guys there in Jacksonville, did it not? Well, amen, and praise the Lord. We were very lucky there, Jimmy, and thank you for your prayers. I appreciate it. It skirted uh, along the coast and uh, apparently uh, made made landfall in Cape Hatteras, but uh, missed these huge populated areas in southern Florida and all the way up the Florida coast. Yeah, praise the Lord for that. Well, we're glad to hear that great report from you. Well, let's uh, get now to your analysis of political activities, and they are setting the stage, I do believe, for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This first one would seem to be that case. Iran is uh, building a large military base near the Syrian-Iraqi border. That's a part of that land bridge that Iran wants, but it's within the range of some of the missiles from that base that could hit Israel. Is that not the case? Oh, absolutely, and they will be installing missiles at that base. So far, the imagery that's come out, the satellite imagery that's come out commercially, uh, has shown that there are very large barracks areas capable of housing several thousand soldiers there. But this is right smack on the Iraqi border. It's near Abu Kamal al-Qaim, which is one of the crossing points between the two. So as you say, it is smack on the road of the land bridge between Iran and Israel's northern border. And that's exactly what Iran wants to set up so they could move their troops right into Israel, which is a scenario found in the prophetic word of God. What about Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, going to Lebanon, telling them, get rid of that second Iranian missile factory, or the U.S.-backed Israeli defense force will make sure it's gone? That's a pretty interesting statement. Uh, Well, it is, and it's a very open warning. I mean, it's highly unusual for a Secretary of State to make this kind of warning and let it be known publicly. Apparently, he, he met face-to-face with the Lebanese foreign minister, Jubran Basel, and met with him because he knew he was close to Hassan Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah. Very, very unusual thing, and he basically said, look, we know where this place is. There was a first site, which, uh, you know, the Israelis uh, have already said they're going to bomb, but he said, we know where this second missile factory is, and the Israelis know where it is. 
they are going to strike it if it's not dismantled immediately. And by the way, the United States will be 100% behind them when they do strike it. I think what you're seeing here, Jimmy, is a pretty extraordinary heating up on both sides, on the Iranian-Hezbollah axis and on the U.S.-Israeli axis. Mm -hmm. The two sides in this potential conflict are accelerating or upping their game, if you wish, the potential, again, for miscalculation for war, I think, is very, very real. For example, we just learned this this week. There apparently was a secret meeting in, in late August in Lebanon where the head of the Quds Force from Iran, Qasem Soleimani, and the commanding general of the Revolutionary Guards Force, uh, General Salami, they both went to Lebanon to meet with Hassan Nasrallah for three hours. This has never happened before, that at least not in the past 12 years. Uh, where these two traveled together, first of all, it's a huge security. They went there for some kind of council of war. So right after that, you're, you're talking a week, 10 days after that, you see these U.S. really warnings to Hezbollah, don't cross these lines because we will whack you. I think the Iranians are getting ready for some uh, dramatic escalation in the conflict, and we're going to see this in the coming weeks. And that, by the way, was a secret meeting that took place in Beirut, this summit, trying to figure out how they're going to go against the Jewish state of Israel. Well, Iran, you can't get them out of the picture for some reason every time you talk about the Middle East. But now, as it relates to the European Union, Iran has given two more months to save the nuclear deal from the Obama administration to the European Union. You think that's going to fly? <laughs> the Iranians are demanding a $15 billion, billion dollar bribe from the Europeans when Zarif, the foreign minister, went to Biarritz, France, for the G7 summit. This is what he was talking to the French about and to the other European leaders. And Little Cookie said, we'll pay. You know, Le Petit Macaron, Little Cookie of France, said, we'll pay the $15 billion. Please, please, don't go beyond the limit of the nuclear agreement for the next two months. I sure pity the French taxpayers. That's an awful high price to pay, $15 billion, just to keep the Iranians doing what they had pledged to do, promised to do all along. Yeah, that is a very interesting move that is unfolding there between the European Union and Iran. We'll stay on top of that story. What about the fact that uh, Putin's missiles have arrived in Turkey, in Erdogan, really defied President Trump. I mean, he's moving farther away from the United States and President Trump, moving into the lap of Vladimir Putin. And we mentioned last week that he'd gone to Russia to go to a Russian air air show and to meet with Putin and to be given a demonstration of the latest fighter jet, the Sukhoi 57, uh, Russia's answer, really, to the F-35 in the United States, which the U.S. has blocked Turkey from buying. So now these S-400 missiles, they are capable of shooting down incoming missiles as well as aircraft. They're a highly capable system. They have a a long-range search radar, early warning radar, an acquisition radar, and a number of um, launchers. We we now have satellite, commercial satellite photographs of them uh, installed, operational, at an air base just outside of Ankara, Turkey. This is quicker than anybody really had imagined it would be done. It shows that the Turks are extremely serious, as you say, at getting closer to Russia and uh, moving away from the United States. I really don't 
see where Turkey continues to be a NATO ally once they start doing this kind of thing. Well, Tayyip Erdogan really has chutzpah. That's a Jewish term that everybody probably knows. But Erdogan is saying now, hey, the Israeli government has uh, weapons of mass destruction, nuclear weapons of mass destruction. Why can't we have them? Boy, if he had those, we he would really be dangerous, wouldn't he? He certainly would. And, and these comments, something he made this past week when he was meeting with his party members in the eastern part of Turkey, in the city of Sivas, again, a, a very extraordinary kind of thing. You hear leaders make comments that you say, okay, this is a bit over the top when they're at political rallies. Uh, it happens in all countries around the world, and, and Turkey is, is not exempt from that. But to talk about nuclear weapons in this particular way, saying, well, the Israelis have got them, why can't we have them as well? Uh, that is disturbing because you know uh, Turkey is building this relationship with the Iranians. They are trying to uh, become closer allies with Iran. They're working together in Syria, and they certainly have worked together for years against the Kurds. So could this lead to some kind of nuclear cooperation between Turkey and, and uh, Iran? That would be mm. extraordinarily dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> how, how solid, how sincere is that uh, Turkish-Iranian friendship? Well, I, I think they are getting closer. You know, it's an on-again, off-again friendship. It's an alliance in many ways. They, they are also, and we've, we've mentioned this on these airwaves, they can be at loggerheads. They have interests which conflict. Turkey is obviously Sunni and Iran is Shia. But again, when it comes to killing Jews and killing Americans, mm-hmm. they get along very, very well. Yeah. And I think here, what we'll have to see is whether that extends also to nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons are a weapon of sovereignty, of national sovereignty, you know, except in the United States helping Britain and the United States helping France, there's been very little sharing of nuclear weapons that I am aware of by sovereign nations. Yes, that is a very concerning thought that you just brought to our attention. Well, since let's the re- Cuban mis- Since the Cuban Missile Crisis, of course. Yes, right. Let me return to that uh, border, the northern border of Israel, southern border of Lebanon, the Israeli Hezbollah situation. Looks like Iran, Saudi Arabia, Syria, and Iraq are all watching that crisis very closely. What's uh, their concern? Well, the, the Saudis want to see how far the Israelis are going to go in whacking the Iranians and destroying Iranian bases. Uh, and uh, it's very important for them to see that take place. They you know, don't want to see an Iranian foothold in Syria. They are concerned about Iran's alliance with Hafez al-Assad. So the irony here is that you've got the Saudis rooting for Israel in their strikes. <laughs> against Iran in Syria. And that's really quite a a dramatic development that has taken place because of President Trump. And it did not happen back in 2006 when there was a conflict between Hezbollah and Israel. At that time, the Israeli government, and especially the defense minister, was very weak. Well, we bring Ken Timmerman to this broadcast table to do exactly what he just did. Gives us great insight and understanding of these geopolitical current events around the world. Ken, so glad you're safe. Thank you so much. We'll talk again next week. Thanks so much, Jimmy. And again, thank you for your prayers. God bless. We're going to take a break. When we come back, it's a Middle East News update. David Dolan standing by. It's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today.
Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on Bookstore or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Have you ever wanted to know more about God's plan for the future? Have you ever tried to understand prophetic passages in God's Word, like, say, the book of Revelation, and been frustrated at not being able to figure it out? Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest CD series, Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, will help you gain the ability to understand where to start in your study of prophecy and allow you to read God's Word in a new and exciting way. Understanding God's prophetic Word will allow you to live a pure and productive life until Jesus returns for the church. Keys will help you gain the tools you need to understand the end-time events as foretold in God's Word. Dr. DeYoung lays out a systematic approach to Bible prophecy for those who want to know God's plan for the future. Tracks included are A Roadmap Through the End Times, The Jew in Jerusalem, Daniel and the Antichrist, Ezekiel and Messiah's Temple, and Revelation and Babylon. To order your copy of Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. Jimmy DeYoung here at Broadcast Central in Chattanooga, Tennessee. About halfway through the week, we're going to head over to Illinois. We have two different locations there, one near Peoria and the other in LaSalle. So if you're in that region, please, and you listen to WPEO Radio, please consider coming to hear us speak on Bible prophecy. Actually, I'm going to be teaching the entire book of Revelation. So excited about what we're able to do on the John Ankerberg Show. I've decided to take that on the road as well. People need to understand. I know everybody teaches the book of Revelation. Well, maybe you haven't studied it chronologically. That's how you have to study it if you're going to understand it. So in the Illinois area, if you're near us and uh, can come, come study the prophetic word of God with us. Well, as promised, we're going to the Middle East to get a report, his Middle East news update from David Dolan, longtime journalist in that region of the world. David, the headline yesterday and now today as well, United States Peace Envoy Jason Greenblatt resigns. What does that mean to the peace process? Well, Jimmy, he has said that he'll stay on until the peace plan is formally unveiled, which they say will be after the Israeli elections. But as we know from the last round of elections early this year, it takes weeks, if not a couple months, to form a new government. And it could take even longer if one candidate can't do it, then the process starts anew. So it may be several months that he's still serving at the White House, but it certainly is a sign that there may be some weakness. This is at least how Israelis are seeing it, the political commentators anyway. Some weakness in this plan that he realizes it's probably not going to fly 
and he doesn't want to stick around for the consequences of that because, as you said, he has been with the president's son-in-law, Gerald Kirshner. He's been the main architect of this peace plan, both of them Jewish. He's been to Israel many, many times and to the Arab countries around, consulting with them on it. But again, as I've been talking about for months and others, too, it just seems very unlikely this peace plan will go anywhere. There's chaos in Israel and the political system. That's likely not to change. The Palestinians have already totally rejected it. They say they want no part of it, but the administration is supposedly hoping that the promise of $50 billion in aid to the Palestinians over a few years as a result of them accepting the plan might mean that the people, the Palestinian people, put pressure on their leaders to go ahead and accept it because they really do need that aid. But that just seems very, very unlikely. So it's a signal that this uh, peace plan is probably not going to go very far. At least that's, again, what the pundits are saying. Well, does it seem from your observations that both sides are so set in their ways they're not going to be able to really negotiate or give in a little bit to make this happen? Well, Jimmy, you know, we have to remember this is really a dream, as it were, from one man, Donald Trump, that he would be able, because he's a great deal maker, as he says, of himself, to uh, do what nobody else before him, going back to Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton, the both President Bushes, and really back to Nixon and, and all of that, that nobody has been able to succeed in re- bringing an end to the Arab-Israeli conflict overall, and certainly the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. And of course, on top of that, now we have a growing conflict with Iran, not an Arab country at all. We had the action on the Lebanese border on Sunday, more threats of that coming. There just seems to be no place right now for this to succeed. The Palestinians, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, their leader Abbas saying Jews never had a foot in Jerusalem in ancient times and were the true people here and they have no right to be here and they should all leave. So uh, this is nowhere near peace. And uh, again, it's the White House's desire to see something succeed. But on the ground, most everybody's been scratching their heads and saying, Well, certainly not now it's not going to happen, because indeed we're facing a showdown between Israel and Iran, probably a full war at some point here. And at least until that happens and major changes happen on the ground, it just doesn't seem possible at all to to most observers and certainly to myself. Interesting statement from the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, who said to Lebanon, get rid of Iran's second missile factory are the U.S.-backed Israeli Defense Forces going to attack it? I mean, that's a pretty tough statement from the Secretary of State. It is, Jimmy. It's a warning to the Lebanese government that there is a full war coming, not just a, a minor skirmish as occurred last Sunday. It wasn't that minor, but it could have easily blown up, but it didn't. But we saw the steps that the Israelis took to prevent it from escalating, and the main reason for that is because the elections are coming up. And they want to have those elections and get that behind them. But after that, most military analysts are saying there's going to be major Israeli strikes on Hezbollah and its missile factories, as you said, these precision-guided missiles that they're upgrading with the Iranian help. The army revealed, the Israeli army on Tuesday revealed that this second plant, they've been doing it in Beirut and around Beirut, but this one is in the eastern Bekaa Valley, right next to the Syrian border, uh, an area that Hezbollah totally controls and has since I was there in 1982. 
and they showed graphs of it, exactly where the buildings are, what's going on there, and they warned this has to be shut down or Israel will shut it down, meaning attack it. And as you say, Mike Pompeo apparently passed that message on to the Lebanese leadership, and uh, President Michel Aoun of Lebanon replied that Israel will be responsible for any action against Lebanon. We will respond fully with our army, not just Hezbollah this time, and our allies will join in. So, once again, <laughs> uh, talking about peace, uh, the talk is of war, and Israel cannot allow Hezbollah to continue to upgrade those missiles. They can now, with the, with the GPS guidance, they can hit targets accurately all the way to the south of Israel. They can hit the Knesset, they could hit the prime minister's home, they could hit certain army bases, whereas before, their rockets weren't that accurate. And they would hit in the area, but not precisely. So Israel's not going to allow this. Netanyahu has made that plain, as has the opposition leader, Benny Gantz. He may be the next prime minister. Indeed, they both said this has to be stopped. And the United States apparently warning that it will back Israel in any strike like that. In other words, to the Lebanese government, you do this first, you stop this, or it's going to be stopped in another military way. Tayyip Erdogan is a major player throughout the entire Middle East. He's the president, of course, of Turkey. And he said this week, I want to see what your thoughts are, David. He said that Turkey should have a nuclear weapon of mass destruction because Israel has nuclear weapons of mass destruction. Now, it's never been absolutely proven that is the case, although all of us believe it. Uh, but now Turkey wants nuclear weapons of mass destruction. Boy, that would make them very dangerous, wouldn't it? Well, Erdogan wants to be the new caliph, apparently, and set up the Islamic State that the group Islamic State failed to maintain in northern Syria and parts of Iraq. He's got a major military force, a much larger country than any of the Arab countries, the larger than Egypt even in population, the largest Arab country. And, of course, he's a NATO member now, or his country is, but a tenuous relationship there, and certainly with the Trump administration. So, yes, um, Turkey armed with nuclear bombs would not be a good thing, for sure. But, again, Pakistan has them, India has them. North Korea probably has them. Other uh, rogue states have them. So it wouldn't be the first uh, opponent of Israel that would get them, but it would certainly be a major game-changer, and the Israelis would have a hard time dealing with that. They're having a struggle dealing with Iran's nuclear program, as we all know, so hopefully that won't happen. But he seems to be on course to be this great uh, caliph, or so it seems. So it seems. By the way, there's a rumor going around Jerusalem that before the elections there could possibly be a summit between the United States, Russia, and Israel. Is that a viable possibility, or is it just talk now? Well, Prime Minister Netanyahu is really courting the Russian vote in Israel. Uh, he's going to go to Moscow before the elections and meet with uh, Vladimir Putin, and that's seen in Israel by many pundits as a political move, that he's trying to woo the Russian voters to the Likud. Of course, Lieberman, the head of the Russian-speaking party in Israel, Israel Beitenu, he has uh, signed an agreement with the opposition Blue and White Party, a vote-sharing agreement, so indicating he will go with them in a new coalition and not with Netanyahu, as he has in the past, the Likud. So it's neck and neck. The election shows very close. And a summit involving the United States Russia and Israel would be a big boost for Netanyahu, for sure. But whether Putin will agree to that is anybody's guess. 
but Netanyahu flying to Moscow in the next few days to try to persuade him to do that. We'll see. The United States seems willing to be involved, and Donald Trump has made clear he would like to see Netanyahu remain in office. But again, the polls are showing it's going to be very, very close. Yeah, and uh, by the way, Vladimir Putin has given indication he's for Netanyahu as well. Well, we'll stay on top of that story with David Dolan. He'll be on top of it and give us the latest analysis of how everything does develop. David, thank you so very much, my good friend. We'll talk again next week. You're welcome, Jimmy. God bless. We're going to take a break. When we come back, Winky Madad coming to the broadcast table. The prime minister, while visiting a Jewish settlement, said he's going to put sovereignty over all Judea and Samaria. They will be under Israeli sovereignty. We'll get that story when we talk to Winky Madad in a moment right here on Prophecy Today. Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the shepherd's field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. Jimmy DeYoung here at Broadcast Central. So glad you could join us. I've always asked you to give me 90 minutes so that we can give you the world and the current events that seemingly are setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. Now, you're moving with us into the second half hour. If you'll give me another 60 minutes, we'll advance what we know to you so you can then study Bible prophecy in context with what is happening in our world today. Always a joy to facilitate your study of the prophetic Word of God. Well, as we begin this half hour, we're going to talk to Winky Madad in just a moment. We're going to be talking about a visit by Prime Minister Netanyahu to a Jewish settlement, and he addressed some children. I'm going to tell you what he said in a moment. And then right after Winky, we'll go to David Wilder. He's in Hebron, the second most sacred city for the Jewish people. Jerusalem number one, Hebron number two. The prime minister also went to Hebron, first time in 20 years. We'll talk with David Wilder about that. But Winky, I want to get to you because last time there was an election back in April and early part of May when they were trying to form a coalition government. The prime minister made a statement about the opportunity to annex or actually give sovereign control to Israel over the areas of Judea and Samaria, and the Jewish communities out there referred sometimes as the settlements in that part of the state of Israel. It's a biblical part and a key location where the Lord has promised the Jews to give them back this piece of real estate. 
But I want to find out what your thoughts are about what the prime minister said when he was visiting one of those communities, a Jewish settlement, talking to the children. He said that we're going to give Jewish sovereignty to all of this area, Judea and Samaria, and all the, I think, over 200, 250 different communities or Jewish settlements out there. Uh, that was a very interesting statement. Is it a promise that the prime minister can keep if he actually can form a coalition government? Well, Jimmy, with all the respect and honor and faith that you and I, and I think most of our listeners, place in the Bible, I just want to make a small correction before I get into your specific question and my specific answer. Jews lived in Judea and Samaria up until 1948. In other words, we're not claiming this land only on the basis, a very good basis, of the Word of God and biblical history, but the history that continued up until 1948, until 1929, there were Jews in Hebron and Nablus. Up until 1948 war, we even had a kibbutz in the Gaza Strip. We had the four kibbutzim just south of Jerusalem in the Gush Etzion area. So part of the problem, I think, that sometimes people have when Mr. Netanyahu or other politicians uh, talk about this land belongs to us, they try to make fun of the Bible as if it's ancient history. And I want to make sure our listeners know that if it wasn't for military losses in the 48 war, and Jordan coming into that area, we would have no problem about talking about Judea and Samaria and Jews living there today. Now, to the specific point of Mr. Netanyahu, I admit that I'm not quite sure exactly what he means. Does he mean to extend Jewish or Israeli sovereignty over Area C, which is, I think, the Naftali Bennett plan from a few years ago, or only to the Jewish communities in those areas, as if some small dots on the map that would say, this is Israel, this is Israel, but they're not connected technically. So I'm not quite sure. But what is important, Jimmy, is the implication in this statement. Israel has a solid religious, historic, and legal claim to extended sovereignty to the areas west of the Jordan River that was part of the mandate that the League of Nations gave the Jews for close settlement, as Article 6 says, on the land. Well, let me ask you, uh, I heard a difference in the phrases there, and I'm not trying to parse what the Prime Minister had to say, but he had said in the past Israeli sovereignty, and he said when he was in that settlement to the little children, Jewish sovereignty. Is there any difference between those two phrases? When he was first in Bethel, and then I think it was in El Canal when he spoke to the children specifically, uh, you'll have to ask the Prime Minister. <laughs> I don't know whether he was speaking uh, to them in a sort of Hebrew way, and therefore he used Jewish sovereignty, meaning that this is the Jewish state. Now, now I am going to parse him, Jimmy, with your permission. In other words, Israel is the state of the Jewish people or the Jewish state. And that's not a wrong thing to say, Jimmy, because as you and I know, the United Nations decided in 1947 when they wanted to partition the mandate that there would be an Arab state and a Jewish state established. That was their language. So whether he was using that purposely 
to make sure that we know that the Jewish people have a claim to the Jewish homeland, which would be, shall we say it, expressed through Jewish state sovereignty. Or at other times, he says, the Israeli sovereignty will be extended, meaning that Israel actually is laying claim to certain geographical locations in the area of Judea and Samaria. Knowing Mr. Netanyahu well, Jimmy, uh, I think he's being purposely a little bit, shall we say, um, non-clear, or it's just simply these are the words that come out of his mouth uh, without even thinking. Well, bottom line then, Winky, is he saying that he's going to make all the Jewish settlements a part of the state of Israel and uh, let that be the final word on it? I, well, I Look, I'm going to take him as his final word, as that's his intention. And I think he's very working very hard in order to make sure that the Trump administration understands that, with help from a lot of our friends in the non-Jewish communities. I think he wants to make sure that even before that happens, Again and again, that phrase is heard so that it becomes frequent and becomes accepted, just like, unfortunately, our enemies use certain words like colonialism and occupation and things of that nature. That's part of the rhetoric game in politics today, and I think uh, Mr. Netanyahu knows what he's doing. I'm not quite sure I know exactly what he intends, but I think what I said before is fairly on the mark in terms of what he wants to do. Do you think, uh, Winky, that he's doing this for personal political reasons? In other words, uh, to get enough votes so he can try to form the coalition this next time? And is it going to be a big help to him? Well, I think he's definitely doing it for that, but not only for that. He's been saying these things off and on before, after, and during elections. And I know him, and I think he has a very deep-seated belief in that ultimate goal of making sure, first of all, that there will be no Palestinian state, at least one that is militarized, and as he's also said many times, less than a state, uh, and we can get along with that. And the third point, pumping up the idea that Judea and Samaria belong to the Jewish people, and there's nothing more natural than the state of Israel extending its sovereignty, its uh, direct administration of areas or all areas within it, depending on the situation. Winky, let me take a side trail here. I read another article that said uh, that the Israeli government was going to move to take away the guns from the Jewish settlements, and the settlers there around the city of Jerusalem. I'm not quite sure what it's meaning, but I have to go back to what Ariel Sharon had to say when he was the Minister of Housing there in the Israeli government. He said that the settlements would be the first line of defense. Well, Winky, I, when I need to have some answers, you're the go-to man. That's why we're having this conversation today and appreciate it so very much, the input that you do give to us. We'll have another conversation, I'm sure, very soon, close down the line. Thank you so much, buddy. We'll talk to you again. Jimmy, thank you very much for having me on the program. Goodbye to you and our listeners. Very interesting conversation and great insight from Winky Madad on the visit by Prime Minister Netanyahu to the Jewish settlements, and they're telling the children 
that he is ready to make certain that there is Jewish sovereignty over all of these Jewish communities located in Judea and Samaria. We'll follow up on that story and see how it does end up after the upcoming elections. And after that conversation, we're going to move to the second most sacred city in all of Judaism. Jerusalem is number one, of course, and then Hebron, location of the Machpelah Caves, which is the burial site for the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the man who I go to, the go-to man for me, is David Wilder. David has been so involved in the Hebron community for so many years, he and his family living there. He's guided us on television productions and uh, just for the opportunity to be able to show us around this key city, which actually dates back about 4,000 years ago when Abraham established a residency in that area. Talk to me about, and for those who are just eavesdropping for the very first time on a conversation with you and me, David, inform them of the Machpelah Cave. What is it? Why is it so key? And why is Hebron such an important city to the Jewish people? Um, Okay. I gather this is a very long program. We've got a few hours to talk. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Not quite. Uh, So so look, first of all, Hebron is, is the first Jewish city in Israel. It's where... Abraham settled. He came to live here. He lived here for many, many years. And the site that you mentioned, the case of Machpelah, is actually the first piece of property that was purchased and owned by the first Jew here in Israel. The building on top of the caves themselves was built 2,000 years ago by Herod when he was king of Judea. It's a fascinating site. We've done some research over the years, and and we've been able to, to uncover some interesting facets here and there. But but the caves themselves, which we know are there because people have been in them, are where Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebecca and Jacob and Leah are buried. We know that as a fact, and as such, it's a, it's a very, very important place. This is also, keep in mind, you're right, 100% that Jerusalem is number one, but King David, who actually made Jerusalem into the eternal capital of the Jewish people, was in Hebron for seven and a half years before he went up to Jerusalem. So basically, this is where it all began. This is our roots, the roots of Judaism, the roots of all of monotheism. And for those of us living here today, it's a tremendous privilege to be able to, to be here, to walk in the, in the footsteps of such important, uh, significant people. And because of what you have just said, David, it so surprised me when I saw the headline that Prime Minister Netanyahu is making his first visit of Hebron in some two decades. That's about 20 years. Why has it been so long since he's visited this very important city? That's an excellent question, Jimmy, and I wish you had the opportunity to ask him that. Netanyahu uh, is a very interesting individual, and there are many different sides to him, as I guess you could say about most politicians. He's always been a uh, a supporter of Hebron, but then back in in January of 1997, he signed and implemented the uh, Hebron Accords, which split the city and gave most of it to Yasser Arafat. The last time he was here actually was 21 years ago. After a terrorist attack here, a 63-year-old rabbi was murdered in his home. He was a very important person, and as such, uh, Netanyahu came during his first term as prime minister for a condolence call to his widow and to his, his family. And that was the last time he was here. So why doesn't the prime minister or any prime minister come here regularly? Just because of the importance of the place, of the site, the sanctity, and like that. It's a very good question. 
But as a rule, I don't know, I guess for, for whatever reasons they have, some of them stay away. There are people that have come in numerous times, like the man who's presently the president of Israel, Ruby Rivlin, the speaker of the Knesset, has been here numerous times. There was actually a minister many years ago who used to come in once a month to pray at the Caves of Machpelah, early morning prayers. I hope that we will see change and that it won't even be thought of as something special that makes a headline when people like that come here, because just like people go to the wall in Jerusalem, they should come to the case Machpelah, they should see the excavations that we have here. They're fascinating. Netanyahu has never seen them. Uh, part of our culture as people, and it would be preferable if they, they did come in and made it part of their regular routine. David, I read in that article that you mentioned the president, Reuven Rivlin, and uh, the speaker of the Knesset were going to be traveling along with the prime minister to visit Hebron, and it gave information to me that it was the 90th anniversary of the 1929 slaughter of Jews there in Hebron. Talk to us about that. Give us a, a bit a brief information about uh, what that slaughter was all about, and what are you going to be doing on the 90th anniversary of it? Well, actually, the reason that they came in for that is because a decision was made, I, to the best of my recollection, about 20 years ago, that every 10 years there would be an official governmental ceremony marking the uh, riots and the massacre that took place here uh, in 1929. They were instigated and incited by uh, the Mufti of Jerusalem and Hadramin al-Husseini, who later was a Nazi, worked with Hitler, and had plans to annihilate the Jews living here in pre-state Israel during World War II. The massacre was committed by the people who lived here, by the uh, neighbors of the Jews that lived here. There were over 67 Jews that were murdered, over 70 that were wounded. And uh, as a result of that, the British, who were then ruling here under the mandate of the League of Nations, expelled the Jews who survived, saying that the Jews and the Arabs couldn't continue to live together here, and there were more Arabs than Jews. It was easy to throw out the Jews and throw out the Arabs. And as Yuli Edelstein, who's the uh, speaker of the Knesset, said yesterday when he was here, he said exactly, I think he said 35 years ago, exactly 35 years ago, he was arrested in the, uh, the then Soviet Union, uh, because of his ties to Zionism and his efforts on behalf of the Jewish people in Russia. He was in jail for many years, and he said, who could have thought then that here I would be today in Hebron for the anniversary of the, the uh, 1929 riots as the Speaker of the Knesset. So we see that despite all of the uh, hardships that we face individually and as people, we always overcome. And the fact that we live here today, I think, is a testament to that. Yes, absolutely. I agree with that. Palestinian authorities said that the prime minister's visit was obviously war. I don't know what he meant exactly <laughs> by that, but what do you think he meant? The, uh, the head of the Palestinian Authority today, Abu Mazen, President Abbas, Mahmoud Abbas, put up photographs on his Twitter account showing pictures of Netanyahu and the Israeli flag being burned. Uh, and they uh, called it a tremendous provocation. They said that this could lead to a, uh, basically to a jihad, to a religious war throughout the Middle East. And, and these are things that we've heard before. Anytime there's an official visit by any personage here, this is what they say, because they say it's occupied Palestinian territory, that the cave of Machpelah 
is a uh, Palestinian heritage site and that we have no rights to be there whatsoever. And they, of course, for 700 years prevented Jews and Christians from entering the building on top of the case Machpelah because they said it's a mosque and only Muslims can pray in a mosque. Uh, how they deal with the fact that the building was built 600 years before Muhammad was born is also a very good question that, that I've never received a good answer to. But they see the Jewish presence on Hebron as a provocation. They say the visit of any important person, be a prime minister or a minister or in the government or anybody else, as a provocation. But then again, they see our existence in Tel Aviv and in Haifa and Beersheba as also a provocation. So, uh, you know, it's something that we can live with. Well, I want to tell you something. I've been there, and my guide was David Wilder. We went to the entrance of the cave. We're not able to go into the cave, as he mentioned earlier. Uh, but I have been there. We've done some television and radio from there with David Wilder. And may I suggest, if you're on a tour, tell your tour leader. They ought to get a hold of David Wilder at davidwilder.org. He'd be happy to show everybody around, give them the history of this location, as he has today here on the broadcast. David, I wanted to update the Prime Minister's visit and what it was all about and let our people understand the importance of this city of Hebron. You've done an excellent job, my good friend. You've always been a great friend and a wonderful facilitator for us there in Hebron. Thank you so very much, and we'll have another conversation down the road, I hope, real soon. Thanks, Jimmy. Shalom, shalom. David Wilder, there in Hebron, second most sacred city in Judaism, and a great report on what happened this last week. John Rood is the man who covers the European Union for us, and John and I agree that the European Union may well be at least the infrastructure for the revived Roman Empire. Therefore, we look at the political activities and compare them to the prophetic scenario that's found in God's Word. Uh, we see the revival of the Roman Empire and essential for the end-time scenario to be played out. John, it's great to have you, and let me get right underway. Prime Minister Netanyahu, the Israeli Prime Minister, went to the United Kingdom to meet with the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, and Netanyahu made this statement, uh, Mr. Prime Minister, why do not we work together to counter Iran? Now, it looks like Iran's putting pressure on the European Union. We'll get to that in a moment. Was this going to be a beneficial visit of the Prime Minister of Israel with the Prime Minister of Great Britain? Yes, actually, it's a good development, in fact, that it's recognized that Iran is the primary concern. And, of course, Boris Johnson, the new British Prime Minister, he was the ex-foreign minister. So he's very well experienced in the Middle East. And he's had a good track record with Israel, not perfect, but a good track record and so Prime Minister Netanyahu had addressed him, said you've always been a great friend of the Jewish people in Israel, and so they've identified that the issue is Iran uh, working against their aggression and terrorism, and so we could see some developments there. I believe that they will continue to be friends. Well, and at the same time, the European Union is in somewhat of a battle with Israel they want expansion for the Palestinian community throughout Judea and Samaria. I don't think the Prime Minister is going to go along with that. Why are they pushing so hard? Yes, the EU plan is, at times, uh, it's a bit slothful, and it works slowly over a number of years. 
but their uh, stands are very firm. So we have that the EU, in terms of the, as you say, Judea and Samaria and the settlements, uh, the EU had made a decision back in 2011, was a report, and they followed up with that. And essentially, they are supporting that the Palestinian settlements would be built in the Area C. Of course, uh, in Judea and Samaria, we have the areas A, B, and C, which are from the Oslo II Accords. Area C is to be under Israeli jurisdiction, administrative. And so they really don't have the, uh, the legality to be building in that area. Yet it seems like the whole world is against it, and you, all you have to do is read the agreement. There's thousands of buildings that have been there. The EU essentially is supporting this. It appears that they want to have a continuous Arab settlements from the south to the north in the area, which is going to be the forerunner as they're planning for a two-state solution. It appears they want to have a Palestinian state in this area under Israeli administration. That's the European Union desire. But at the same time, it looks like Iran, I mentioned earlier, is uh, putting the squeeze on the European Union uh, so that, indeed, that uh, nuclear deal that was made initially by the United States could uh, cause some problem. In fact, Iran is threatening to start enriching more uranium, and at the same time, Iran giving the European Union about two months to see if they can save this nuclear deal. Uh, Yes, Iran is putting on the squeeze, as you say, or they're even bullies. They're trying to say to keep this deal, you know, you have two months, they're putting more pressure and they've already broken agreements from the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which is, we know as the nuclear deal. And now they're saying they're going to take the third step of noncompliance to the treaty. Nobody knows exactly what it is, but they've already stockpiled more uranium than was under the previous agreement, and they've enriched more. So it appears that higher levels of enrichment is what they're threatening at this moment. France has traditionally had a closer relationship with Iran than some of the other larger European Union countries. And so the French proposal is that they'll make $15 billion of credit lines to appease uh, Iran. Uh, The Iranian TV actually came out and said it was a loan, but it's not a loan. It's a credit line, Mm -hmm. and essentially what they're doing is trying to sell forward the pre-sale of the oil to give them guarantee. But I don't think Iran will ever be satisfied with these type of arrangements. It's just an ongoing pressure on the European Union, and the European Union allows themselves to be bullied in this regard. Yeah, and at the same time, you have Iran moving closer and closer to the ultimate development of a nuclear weapon of mass destruction, which is not good for this world. We'll stay on top of that. Well, I save the best for last, John. Talk to me about the no-deal Brexit. One researcher is saying this could be the end of the beginning for the United Kingdom. What do you know? Well, we have developments on Brexit now every day. The idea of the New Deal Brexit was a nice idea that Boris Johnson said was he is going to be very strict to keep the October 31st deadline. Now the light is sort of coming out to see what the European Union had really planned, because even though the Parliament was scheduled to go into suspension, they've rushed and they went through and they've literally voted now 
that the UK Parliament has voted that there cannot be a no, a no deal. So they would have to renegotiate a new plan, but the plans have already been voted down three times. Oh, and by the way, the no deal will, is expected to pass the House of Lords. Then we have another vote from the Parliament has blocked a general election, which is what the Prime Minister would need to get everyone on his side and a clear mandate to continue with the no deal. The news just came out today that a high-level labor person has said, our idea is to negotiate a new deal and then reject it. So this is actually the plan to continue ever-increasing delays. And so this is a way that the U.K. would, in a sense, indefinitely stay in the European Union from these delays. I'm frequently asked, what's the situation with Brexit? We have three over three years since the vote to leave. Then we've had numerous rejected attempts at a treaty. The new prime minister, the no-deal Brexit, and it's just keep going now. It appears there's in a limbo because they're forcing that a new deal must be approved, but there is no new deal. Hmm. So, therefore, we're in this stalemate. Yeah, absolutely. Total discombobulation as it relates to Brexit and uh, the area of Great Britain. That's why we have John Rood come to the broadcast table to give us what we think is going on. We're not sure when it relates to Brexit. The other issues we discuss pretty much on target. John, thank you so much, my good friend. We'll talk to you again next week. Thank you very much. We're going to take a break, and when we come back on the other side of the top of the hour and the news, David James, our last broadcast partner, will join us. We'll talk about dangerous trends in theology and eschatology today. Go keep the dial right where it is. You're listening to Prophecy Today. Hi, everybody. Jimmy DeYoung here at Broadcast Central in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Thank you for joining us for this program, Prophecy Today. We look at current events in light of biblical prophecy. Our broadcast partners have been so effective in giving us insight into these events that are happening, helping us to see how they fit right into the prophetic scenario that's found in God's Word. Now, we've got about a half hour left, so stay with us till the very end. I'll give you a look at the book at the end of this segment. I have a poll question I would love for you to answer. If you'll go to my homepage on my website, prophecytoday.com, on the left-hand column, scroll down, and there you'll find the question. Here's the question. As Israeli elections get closer and closer, Prime Minister Netanyahu and all Israeli politicians are on the campaign trail. Prime Minister Netanyahu's visit to Great Britain and then to a Jewish settlement in Judea and Samaria where he promised sovereignty over this region of the world seems to be both political and prophetic. Do you agree that these moves are both political and prophetic and good for the Jewish state of Israel? Now, that's the poll question. Please answer it. And while you're there at the website, look at the information about our upcoming prophecy conference here in Chattanooga, Tennessee. The dates, put them on your calendar right now, December 2nd to the 5th in this year. It'll be here in Chattanooga. David James and I will be the two speakers 
David will be talking about God's plan through the ages. This is a must for every pastor that you know. You need to help him come down here to the conference. And then I'll conclude my third installment of Prophecy Through the Bible. I've gone through the entire Bible, or will, when I complete this course this December. We'll take all 66 books of the Bible and show you how they fit into prophecy and how each of the books does have prophetic passages in them. That date again, December the 2nd through the 5th, come join us here at the Prophecy Conference, the Prophecy Today Conference in Chattanooga. We now bring to this broadcast table David James. He comes here on a weekly basis for the purpose of having a conversation with me that will deal with an issue facing the church, key issues that we must discuss and come from a biblical perspective as we come to some conclusions. going to be talking today about current theological issues facing the church, as I said. This week we're going to be able to catch David on his way to another international trip, the first of the current school year, and returning to Uganda. David, you're going back for the third time this year. What's the deal over there? Well, that's right, Jimmy, and uh, this is a great opportunity for me to train as many as 20 who are in full-time ministry who really have no other opportunity to gain solid theological education. This is a very important training program in an area of the world with very little sound theological training. You know, this is a course I've taught quite a few times for Word of Life in Hungary and the Philippines. I'm really looking forward to teaching it, but it's definitely been a lot of work to prepare for. Yes, and uh, you're never going to have an end to teaching this particular course with the way Christianity seemingly is going in our day. By the way, thank you for sending me a list of what you'll be looking at, the topics that you're covering in that course. And since you're going to be teaching the class on current theological issues, thought it might be good for us to talk about today. As part of the prep for today's discussion, we have this information in front of us, so let me just kind of look at the list and ask you some questions. Here's one. The biblical emphasis on right doctrine. How do you approach this particular issue? Well, I teach and preach on this specific issue quite a bit, and actually I preached it in a church just this past weekend as well. And the main passage I use for this are found in First Timothy, starting in chapter 1. In verse 3 of First Timothy chapter 1, Paul tells Timothy to remain in Ephesus in order to command certain men to not teach any doctrine other than what they have learned from Paul. And we could really call First Timothy, we could almost call it Second Ephesians, because what Paul writes is for the sake of the entire church. You know, the church in Ephesus began with 12 Jewish disciples of John the Baptist who were found by Paul, as recorded in Acts chapter 19, and he preached the gospel to them, and they became believers in Christ. So Paul ended up spending three full years pastoring and discipling the believers there, which would have been from about 53 or 54 A.D. to around 57 or 58. Then he wrote 1 Timothy maybe seven or eight years later, which means that in less than ten years the church was already in serious trouble, even though Paul had been there, like I said, for three years. And Paul refers to right doctrine over and over again throughout 1 Timothy, including with regard to women not teaching 
in chapter 2 and selecting elders who would be able to teach in chapter 3. And in chapter 1, Paul gives a list of some of the worst possible sins and directly connects those to a failure to stick to right doctrine. So one of the main takeaways is that if this can happen to the church in Ephesus in less than a decade, then this can really happen to any church organization or educational institution in just a very short period of time, and it's definitely a cautionary tale. David, another topic I think is important is what you called the resurgence of Calvinism. I know you run into that a lot all over the world. I do as well when I'm traveling and speaking. Maybe it would be helpful to briefly explain what Calvinism is and why it's something that we must be concerned about. Well, I'm sure that most of our listeners have run into this one way or another, whether or not they really understand what it's all about. And I would guess that some of our listeners have become persuaded by Calvinism and maybe won't be extremely happy with us uh, discussing it in a critical way, but that's okay. Some may be familiar with the TULIP acrostic, T-U-L-I-P, with the letters standing for total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. And I don't want to get too far into the weeds on this, but there are a few important points that our listeners really need to understand. First of all, the L in TULIP, as I said, stands for limited atonement. And this means that Christ didn't die for everyone. He didn't die for the sins of all people. And secondly, because five-point Calvinists teach that Christ didn't die for everyone, then that means that God doesn't really love everyone equally. And therefore, when an honest Calvinist is sharing the gospel, either personally or publicly, you will never hear him say that God loves you and Christ died for you, because if you're not one of the elect, God doesn't really love you and Christ didn't really die for you. And I know it's easy to get lost in the five points of TULIP, but the way to cut through the fog is to simply ask this simple question, which comes first, regeneration or faith? The Calvinist says that God causes someone to be born again first so that they can believe, while you and I, I think, would both say that we exercise faith so that we can be born again. And that's, this is a very important issue. Absolutely. And faith coming by the hearing of the Word of God, the book of Romans. Well, uh, that's a very important issue, and I'm glad you're dealing with that one as well. I know you're doing more and more ministry there in Africa, and as we've discussed before on this program, the charismatic movement is a huge problem there in the continent of Africa, and that is one of the sections that you're dealing with in this upcoming class as well, is it not? That's right. I've been teaching a course called Signs, Wonders, and the Charismatic Movement for some 20 years, and I've taught it five times for Word of Life in Uganda. And as you noted, it's a huge problem in Africa. And when I taught this course in February for Word of Life, I think that all of my students, uh, and there were over 20 in the class, had either come from a Pentecostal or Charismatic background, or were still connected with those kinds of churches. And it's almost impossible to avoid in Africa, and so this is going to be an important part of this upcoming 
upcoming course, and I'm fairly sure that at least some of my students won't agree with some of the things that I'll be teaching them. And as I've learned about the situation in Africa over the years, I've made some observations that I've asked some of the Word of Life staff about, and they've confirmed that I'm seeing it correctly, and this has to do with traditional African religions. My observation has been that there's a blurring of lines between African traditional religion and Christianity, and that uh, pagan ideas and practices have essentially been Christianized on the African continent. And so on the surface, there's this sort of thin veneer of Christianity, and it's very easy to do this with things that characterize the charismatic movement. It's just a natural fit. And one of the most obvious things that I think is really devastating is the concept of what they call there in Uganda the man of God or woman of God in any given community. Uh, They tend to be rich. They tend to be powerful, they have expensive cars and houses, and they often have bodyguards. And it really doesn't take much imagination to realize that they are the Christianized versions of witch doctors. And when combined with the unbiblical theology and mystical practices of the charismatic movement, they are very powerful forces to be reckoned with. And again, I've had Africans confirm that my observation on this is is right. David, also in that list that you sent to me, you talked about convergence in the last days. What do you mean by that, and what are you seeing that concerns you? Well, that's the last topic that I deal with in this course, and I would say that as we move deeper and deeper into the last days, and the stage is being set for the final round of prophetic fulfillment, there are a number of things that can be uh, observed. First, there's an increasing acceptance of other religions as being compatible with Christianity, and there's an increasing acceptance of broad cooperation among all groups, even within Christianity. There's also an increasing acceptance of liberal theology and that being compatible with evangelical theology, and this would include the idea that there's no such thing as absolute truth, the acceptance of what have been historically considered as sinful lifestyles, as well as the idea that Jesus Christ isn't the only way the truth and life and that all religions ultimately lead to heaven. And this is happening, I would say, because there's an increasing rejection of the inspiration and fallibility and authority of the Bible. And with this comes the increasing rejection of the biblical understanding of Jesus' unique identity as the one and only eternal Son of God who died on the cross for our sins and arose from the grave. And as we've already discussed, you know, there's an increasing acceptance of charismatic claims concerning tongues, signs, and wonders, and this is leading to a convergence among all branches and denominations of Christianity, including Protestantism, Roman Catholicism, and Eastern Orthodoxy. And then there is all sorts of craziness concerning eschatology and end-time scenarios, including what we've discussed in the past on this program, the some have called the postmodern prophetic paradigm, which includes what I've called UFO Nephilim eschatology. So these are really serious issues. They really are. Boy, I'm glad you're dealing with this. It needs to be dealt with here in America as well as over there in Africa. Well, let's wrap it up by talking about the process of discernment. Now, there's a lot of people talking about discernment, but I'm not sure there's a lot of material out there explaining exactly how a believer like you and I should try to sort through all of this stuff that's out there. 
You're right, Jimmy. There isn't a lot in the way of practical advice from what I've seen, and this is one reason I've really thought about writing a book on this subject for quite some time. There are several steps I would say you can take even before you get to the point of evaluating something biblically. First of all, I tell people to listen to their instincts. If something doesn't seem quite right based upon your knowledge of the Word of God in general, if there are red flags, then there's almost certainly a problem. I also frequently tell my students that sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is think logically. In other words, does what is being said even make sense? And for example, when it comes to a book, you really should judge a book by its cover, because there you have the title, the author, the publisher, a brief synopsis of the book, and endorsements, and some of those things also apply to articles and videos that somebody might be watching. And again, if there are red flags when you think about these things, just don't waste your time. There's better stuff out there. And of course, we need to evaluate things biblically, but you can save yourself the time and trouble of doing that long before you even get to that step. And finally, I would say this, that eating the meat and spitting out the bones is not a good strategy for spiritual growth. If anyone is ever eating fish, then it's almost certain they've swallowed a few bones unintentionally, and they've swallowed bones they didn't realize they swallowed, and those bones are just as dangerous. And so the same thing is true when it comes to our spiritual well-being. It just isn't worth it. I like that uh, analogy of eating fish. I got many bones in my body somewhere from that were not mine originally. David, that was great. You have done great research, and I just praise the Lord for the opportunities you're having to be able to give all this information to the body of Christ, and especially the leadership, so they can teach those who are under their particular ministry. We'll be praying for you as you travel to Uganda. Have a safe trip, and from Uganda, we'll talk to you next week. That's right, Jimmy. Lord willing, I look forward to it. We're going to take a break right now. When we come back, I'm going to open up the Bible, take a look at the book. It's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Hey, everyone. This is Dave James with the Alliance for Biblical Integrity. You hear me each week discussing current theological issues with Jimmy DeYoung on the Prophecy Today weekend broadcast. We founded the Alliance for Biblical Integrity because we saw a need for an apologetics and discernment ministry that would be an important resource for local churches, schools, and ministry organizations that face ever-changing theological challenges in today's world. I teach many different courses and seminars in the United States and around the world and can tailor the seminars for Sunday schools, Bible studies, and church services, and the courses for weekend conferences of 6 to 10 hours. For more information, you can go to the ABI website at biblicalintegrity.org. That's one word, biblicalintegrity.org, and click on Courses and Seminars on the main menu. You can also contact me personally through the contact page on the ABI website. I look forward to hearing from you. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. 
If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, a chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end times prophecy book that God has preserved in his scriptures for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. It's time right now here on Prophecy Today for us to take a look at the book. I'll open the Bible. We'll talk about what uh, the conversations were with my broadcast partners. These reports helping us to align current events and the prophetic scenario that's found in the Bible. If you missed any of the reports and my conversations with my broadcast partners, please go to my website, prophecytoday.com. Then go to PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network, and there you can listen to these reports. If you've already heard them, well, you can maybe listen again and learn something else, like my conversation with David James. It may be good for you to hear that one again. And do me a favor, please pass all of this information along to a friend, someone who needs to hear these reports from our broadcast partners as well. People need to understand God's plan for the future and how it is coming together. I want to rehearse our broadcast partners' reports and then give you a prophetic perspective. For example, Ken Timmerman, there in Jacksonville, he was reporting to us Turkey's Erdogan, who is the president, of course, who wants nuclear weapons of mass destruction because Israel has them. I want to remind you that Turkey is key in Bible prophecy. If you want to find Turkey, you look at Ezekiel chapter 38, verses 2 and 6. In verse 2, it says Meshach and Tubal. In verse 6, Tugarma and Gomer. These are the four parts of biblical Turkey. That would be Asia Minor back in the time right after Christ and as the gospel is spreading across the world. But today, even modern-day Turkey is basically divided into four parts, Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, and Tagarma, modern-day Turkey. And I want to tell you something that is so key. You've got to understand uh, that Turkey is getting closer and closer to Vladimir Putin and Russia. He has just received the S-400s ground-to-air anti-missile system that will keep any type of an aircraft flying over Turkey and being involved in what's going on. Now, Tayyip Erdogan is wanting a nuclear weapon of mass destruction, just like everybody else, and he particularly pointed out that Israel has these weapons. But do remember, Turkey and Iran are becoming closer and closer together also, forming a partnership, and if they both were nuclear-powered, it would be a major threat, not only to the Middle East, but the entire world, and that's what Bible prophecy calls for. David Dolan gave us a Middle East news update. The United States Peace Envoy, Jason Greenblatt, he resigned from that position in the White House as the Peace Envoy for the United States, working on the Trump peace plan there in Israel and with the Palestinians. Now, the Trump peace plan is in question because of this resignation and other things that are happening. For example, the Israeli elections, uh, that's going to cause a hiccup there in the road for a presentation of this peace agreement. 
The United States election campaign is beginning at the same time. But I want to tell you this. The Bible tells us there will be peace in the Middle East, albeit the first thing we're going to see is a pseudo-peace. When Jesus Christ comes back, peace for eternity. But until that time and prior to his coming for the kingdom period, there will be a pseudo-peace there. And if you look at Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27, when it talks about the Antichrist confirming the peace agreements that are already on the table today. Winky Madad, he's a good friend and broadcast partner. He talked about the prime minister's promises to Judea and Samaria that they will be put under Israeli sovereignty. You know, the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37, verses 7 to 11, talks about the Jewish people coming back into existence in the land of their forefathers, forming a nation and becoming a strong army. Well, those prophecies are almost completely fulfilled. God gives additional information. In Ezekiel chapter 36, he talks about the land that he has promised to give the Jewish people, and the land total, when he gives that land to them, will be ten times what they have today. Now, that will happen after the tribulation period. At the beginning of the kingdom, search the book of Ezekiel chapters 47 and 48, when he divides the land among the 12 leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. David Wilder talked to us about the prime minister's visit to Hebron to commemorate the 90th anniversary of the 1929 slaughter of the Jewish people. Hebron, remember, is the oldest Jewish community, some 4,000 years old, It was established by Abraham, Genesis chapter 13. It's the second most sacred location in the Jewish state of Israel. It's the entrance to the Garden of Eden and the Temple Mount, of course, being the Garden of Eden. In the Machpelah Cave, which is the burial site for the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you also have Adam and Eve buried in that same location. John Rood reports on the European Union He said that the Israeli prime minister met the British prime minister, and Israeli prime minister Netanyahu said to Prime Minister Johnson of Great Britain, hey, let's work together as we go against Iran. The European Union is trying to save the Iranian nuclear deal. Prime Minister Vigil said that is not a good move. Join with us and we will defeat Iran. By the way, the European Union is the infrastructure for the revived Roman Empire, Daniel chapter 7, verse 7, the ten horns, and then Daniel chapter 2, the ten toes at the end of chapter 2. David James, we had a great conversation. We always have a weekly conversation focused on an issue that we need to discuss from a biblical perspective. Our theme today was Dangerous Theological Trends, and I want you to please go back and re-listen to what David has to say. This is a very important warning for the body of Christ, for the church today. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, that false teaching and false prophets will be prevalent in the last days, probably the most important sign for the second coming, not the rapture, but the second coming of Jesus Christ. Everything we've talked about on this program today is evidence that current events are setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. But let me remind you that these prophecies talked about on the broadcast are only fulfilled after 
the rapture of the church. No prophecy needs to be fulfilled before the rapture, Jesus calling us up into the heavenlies. And having said all of this, basically that rapture could happen at any moment. There's nothing left for me to say, except let's keep looking up until. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Thank you.